because it's so so much of a cultural institution, and there's there's a you know you find that a lot of monks have diabetes because because they get oftentimes very rich food and no exercise. <clears throat> so, and that's a good way to and a lot of sweet, uh, sweet sweet things and rich food and no exercise because they've got this thing our monks shouldn't do exercises so uh, <clears throat> that's the, the cultural thing really in Burma I think it's the same thing the um, in the forest tradition we we did we always did like we worked and Walked a lot on Bindabat and Tudong, but, uh, uh, so we did exercise. But then, the, then there is a tendency to, uh, to, uh, like, uh, test the limits of the human constitution. So you have the Dutanga, thirteen Dutanga practices. I, I've done those, and then uh, at one time I remember uh, I used to do a lot of fasting, and then uh, I would, uh, you know, so I'd I'd go on fasts quite often, and then and then. Uh, uh, one time, after I've been doing this for several years, and Ajahn Chah, once I went up, you know, and I wanted to go on another fast, and he said, he says, oh, another one. He says, oh, you're not like Ajahn Ian over there. He said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, he just doesn't make a problem. He just eats his food. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and it, I got the point because <laughs> I was always making a problem about food and and uh, and then I could see like the the one meal a day practice and and uh, how Bindabata how the sense of just you know you know the, the kind of vehicle of the Sangha was you didn't, you know, you could kind of push against it or or things like this, you know, try to test your limits. In the long run, you just surrender to the limits of the of the Vinaya, that's good enough. You don't need to kind of do more than that. Because you, you just, it oftentimes is bound up with a lot of ditty, you know, self, wanting <laughs> to, you know, you get rid of greed or things like this. <clears throat> so then I began to just <clears throat> trust in just the the form itself, with the, you know, because I thought it's enough. I mean, I used to when I first started. <clears throat> when I first went to Wat Bapong, I, I mean, I found the food there so horrible to me. 
that, uh, and then they mixed everything up in the alms bowls, uh, so that uh, that I would, uh, and the monk sitting next to me <coughs> was a Thai monk. He was really good. He'd really, he was really ascetic. Like he'd pour his Pepsi Cola in and his coffee in and and anything. It'd all go in the alms bowl. And he'd stir it up and it'd be this kind of sloshy mass and he'd eat it. And I thought, I can't do that. I can hardly eat the food. Uh, if I just learn to eat the food, that's, I think that's enough. <laughs> and, then, <clears throat> and then celibacy. If I can just be celibate, you know, I don't need to, you know, just little things like this, just, just how to, to uh, live within these limits that, are, that are, exist without kind of feeling I had to do more than that. So I... <coughs> And then eventually, I, I, you know, I think I wanted to test my own limits, like with regard to food, <clears throat> because I'd been brought up in the, with this kind of white middle class panicky style, where, you know, if, you, if I missed one meal, my mother would say, Oh, you missed your meal! <laughs> you must look after yourself. <laughs> you get these kind of messages, you know, that if you don't have three meals a day, you, you're going to drop dead. So, so uh, and I mean, even though I, I kind of knew better, yet emotionally there was, there was that, that kind of thing in my mind. And I just wanted to see how long I could go without food. And, and I, I, I valued that because I did find, you know, that I could, some, I could, I still could function on if I ate every other day or if I, went for a week without food, I, it was all right, you know. So, I mean, it, that, that really made me not afraid around food, you know, of being, going without it. And, uh, but then after a while, I didn't really, didn't feel I needed to do that anymore, like, fast. And then, like, sleep sitter's practice. I did that for a month, but I didn't lie down. <clears throat> And then, uh, and I was getting pretty good at it, but then, then I have, I have this bad foot, so it, you know, I, I actually need to lie down so I could elevate it, because it, it gets swollen and, but then, uh, I just, uh, I just figured out that I'm going to uh, just know my limits. And uh, sleep, how much sleep do I need? Rather than somebody tell me you can only sleep so long, you know, to find out for yourself. Then, uh, how much food and things like this. It's just, uh, because there are a lot of opinions going around at any, <coughs> in, the, in the monasteries about you know, kind of ascetic ideals and things like that. And you get a lot of praise for being ascetic. And uh, that was, uh, so I think, you know, especially newly ordained people need to, I mean, oftentimes they need to kind of just prove 
for themselves, their own limits. But after a while, you don't, you know, you, I, I decided I wasn't going to make monastic life into just an endless hassle for myself. You know, I, I wanted to stay among it. I wanted to enjoy the life. <clears throat> so I wasn't going to use it as an endless kind of, you know, ascetic practice or, or you know, you know, something that I was always kind of beating myself up with. So I, 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 uh, because uh, within the limits, uh, like of denial, there is, you know, it's not, it's not an ascetic, it's not asceticism. The Buddha, even though to lay people, it probably looks ascetic, you know, Vinaya, but actually it's not, you know, it's, it's reasonable. It's fairly reasonable limitation. And it's not, you know, asking us to kind of ruin our health or, or uh, harm anything at all. Then, uh, then a lot of sickness does come. It seems like your karma ripens very quickly in the Sangha. So, <laughs> so things, people get weird ailments. And, and also I think like celibacy, uh, because a lot, of, a lot of people do generally repress uh, sexual desire a lot, that tends to, and that creates tension, a lot of tension in the body. And then, uh, so learning how to be celibate without creating tension, you know, without repression. And that's through mindfulness, understanding, observing the way the body is, understanding how the body works, what the drives are, and things like this, rather than, than taking a very personal view that you've got to stop uh, sexual desire, you know, you just, because we identify very strongly with that energy, you know, it's very, it's given a lot of personal qualities, and actually it's a, it's a kind of basic drive, and it's very quite physical, and it's, and it's natural, and, and there's, there's nothing wrong with it, you know, it's not, not, uh, not putting it in a category of the, it's evil or bad, but when you choose celibacy as your, as your vehicle, then, then it, it reflect, helps to reflect that, you know, mirror the, that kind of energy. And this is where you, you know, you trust in the ability to, to observe and, and uh, <coughs> contemplate experience. Then, then in a lot of, like I think Western people are very, we, we have so many, like in Thailand, in Isan, people are pretty uh, grounded as, as human beings. You know, they're usually farmers and like rice farm, from rice farming communities. And they're very much aware of their bodies. You know, so they're, they're, they're quite aware of basic human emotions and, and uh, they kind of accept that. 
you know, the, the basic uh, humanity. Where, where Western people tend to, uh, we, we, we complicate everything by, by uh, our ideals of how things should be. So, I mean, you get praprangs or Western monks in a Thai monastery and, and we, we get so idealistic, we're so idealistic, and they're, and they're not. Uh, and so there, that uh, oftentimes there's a lot of misunderstanding because we're always, we can always conceive of how things should be. And, uh, and then, of course, the practice is observing how things actually are. So, so we, we're very hard on ourselves because we, we can conceive of how, I can conceive of how I should be, how I would like to be as a, as a Buddhist monk the ideal of what I would like to be as a Buddhist monk, and then the realities of what I'm actually feeling or thinking, uh, you know, aren't up to that standard. So then you, there's a lot of self-aversion, <clears throat> self-condemnation, and guilt about basic things. <laughs> <laughs> Like I've seen some, some people feel guilty about being hungry. You know, as if it was greed. You know, as if hunger was greed. Rather than natural need of the body for nourishment, you know, or, or, or sexual desire as some kind of personal uh, failure or you know, obsession or some, something, or seeing it in terms of, of being impure, something like that, then uh, because we often, many of us are from very puritanical backgrounds. I'm from very puritanical backgrounds. <laughs> it was very black and white. And my, my family saw everything in no shades of grey. <laughs> so, <laughs> It was either black or it was white. So then, uh, this was, uh, you know, you, you, and then you, you get inspired because, you know, oftentimes you, when you're inspired, you see what you want to see, the good things. You know, so remember at Wat La Pong when I first went there, feeling very inspired. This is wonderful, you know, it's such a wonderful place, and it's, uh, and even the things that weren't very good about it, you ignored because your mind was, was, was fixed on how wonderful it is. <clears throat> so then you saw everything as wonderful. Like in the Paticca Samupa. <laughs> you know, your basic of each is, what poem is, is wonderful. And then you start from, it's the perfect monastery, you start from there and then you, and then uh, that kind of is the basic of each and that conditions how you how you experience it. So you just you know, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Uh, and how wonderful it is. And and even the 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 things that you, you aren't really all that good, you don't really notice or give them much importance because your 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 mind is is already decided everything is wonderful. And then that drops. You begin to the romance 
falls away and then you start seeing, you start feeling really irritated by everything. And, uh, and then you see, oh, this is, there's many things I don't like about this place. It's not what I really thought. And then you, then you start noticing all the things that you, <laughs> you know, you start observing <laughs> all the, the things that aren't, you know, up to the high standard and, and, and that uh, shouldn't be like this. Shouldn't, you know, good monastery shouldn't be like this. But then, because of the, the practice, you know, you're looking at the way it is, not, not the way things should be, but the way it is in yourself. You know, you're not, you know, Ajahn Chah was, was very good at getting us to observe what we were, you know, the way it is within us and not, not, not be, uh, you know, caught up in this desire to, to uh, make everything the way we would like it to be. So, um, I found that, that's, you know, it was really helpful to me because I, I was very, you know, I was very much, uh, my habit tendencies were, were from idealism, wanting things to, to be perfect, wanting Anjan Chah to be flawless, wanting uh, the monks there to, to really be really good monks and and to see wanting to see Thailand as this really wonderful Buddhist country and wanting to you know just just wanting my ideals to be fulfilled and by and I remember how we used to romanticize everything sometimes how wonderful the Thai villagers are compared to the Americans so you kind of be critical of the Americans, you know, in America, a materialistic country, and you know, the, you know, superpower that just, and you start deriding Americans and you say, but look at the villagers, you know, how simple their lives are. <laughs> Romantic, romanticization of like the noble savage or something like that, and you, <laughs> but then. <laughs> Then when you live with the villagers, they could be extraordinarily mean-hearted and petty too. Like, like when when I was the abbot of Wat Nanachak, had this this man who was the uh, he was the steward, Morpanya, and he was he was uh, he was a kind of a medic. He had a clinic. And he was a very honorable man, and, and he was say, better educated than the villagers. And and he was from the city itself. He wasn't a, like a from a farming family. So he he had a bit of kind of uh, sophistication that the villagers didn't have. But he but he was also a very uh, you know a very honorable, trustworthy man. And he he were he was the kind of uh, steward. Well, the two years I was abbot of Wan Anacha, and uh, and I never had any problem with him. But but then a lot of the men in the village were jealous of him, and when I left, then they started spreading rumors about him, uh, siphoning off funds and oh, making up all kinds of things, and and uh, you know blaming him for 
all kinds of, the, the man, the village man who I had elevated into being these, you know, noble savages, <laughs> simple and, and honorable peasants. And it's like communism, you know, where, you know, the Soviets used to have these posters of peasants working out in the fields all kind of smiling and everybody's happy and the, and aristocrats are all kind of mean and nasty and <laughs> it's that kind of romanticization. Then the, uh, so then, uh, so then you can, you know, when you see the dark side of anything, then you, then you, if you've been idealizing it, then you feel very betrayed by it. You know, so you turn against it like, like you can, people would get, you know, disillusioned with, with things because they hadn't lived up to their standards. And I can see, I can see, you know, how I do that and, and people do that to me. You know, they, they put me on a pedestal and then, and then when I don't live up to their standards and they feel betrayed. So, so that's that's another thing to watch in in the mind. How how uh, how you know that process? Not to think you shouldn't do it. It's not trying to condemn anyone for doing it, but to notice the way it is. So, like the truth of the way it is is now. I mean, whatever you're feeling, it's maybe not what you should feel or want to feel, but it is what it is like this. So, so that pure state is, uh, <coughs> is uh, kind of, is what you can trust, you know, because you can't trust your idealism. You'll only be terribly disappointed. You'll become, the, you know, idealists turn into cynics. You know, you become very cynical and bitter if, you've, if you're just idealistic about life. But then as you contemplate the way things are, the changingness, then you, you realize nothing, you know, like ideals are like peak moments. It's like in, the, in your mind you can create an, a perfect image of how things should be, a perfect society. And I remember we had this exercise <coughs> a few years ago where there's this, uh, some, some, something was going on here in Britain where we were talking about the ideal society and people were writing papers on what the ideal society should be and of course this you know is uh, it's fair and just and equal and kind compassionate full of love and acceptance uh, morality is very moral and people are responsible and uh, People are enlightened, and <laughs> and you've got honest leaders with great integrity, and and uh, you're not corrupting the environment. You respect nature, and religion, and all like that. Those are what is what is that? But the very best, you know, that you can think of, is what should be. And then, uh, in terms of, you know, like painting a picture, you can paint a picture uh, that, you know, has everything as it should be. But then the realities of it, of life, 
are not peak moments or ideals, but they're a changingness, impermanent. So you're you're looking at the changingness of everything rather than just uh, comparing everything with with an ideal of what should be, or with or just seeing peak moments of experience as what should be, because you, you know like everything has, it rises up, reaches its peak, and then goes down. So then in terms of reflection, you're just, this is what wisdom is about. You're noticing how it is, which isn't, it's not judging it, because to judge something, you have to have a standard of how it should be. But if you're just noticing how it is, then you're, then you're, you're, uh, Developing wisdom, all conditions, you know, that of say Buddha wisdom, where all conditions are impermanent, and uh, and your and your ideal of what you should be, the ideal, you know, of, of what I should be as a as a Buddhist monk, is an ideal, but uh, also. Uh, and an ideal is fine, I'm not against ideals either. But you've got to recognize that they're not, that, that if you cling to ideals, then, then, you're, then you're, you're setting yourself up for endless suffering, because life isn't ideal. Life is like this. And uh, so, so, but you need ideals. I mean, they're, they're, they're uh, like guiding stars, you know, they're high, they give direction, but as uh, an end in themselves, they only, you know, you they don't give you perspective on life. They make you they blo- they only make you critical of the changingness of life. But if you, we all have ideals, and that's you know that, and but to recognize their limits rather than attached to them. This way you can, like in, like with emotions, you know, people get confused because they, because, you know, in your intellect you can, you might be having some emotion, some strong emotions, and you, uh, and you, and you don't like them. So you think your intellect saying, "Oh, this is stupid." You know, I'm, I'm how feel like this, and I know it's stupid, and and uh, and so we can oftentimes judge the emotions from an ideal. You know, that that emotions shouldn't. You know, we should, we don't want these emotions. They're maybe we're ashamed of them. They're silly, stupid, and we'd like to get rid of them. Uh, because on the level of your intellect, you can, you know, that's a judgmental faculty, you can, you're making a value judgment about, because they can be, you know, all about poor me, and, and why does life have to be this way, and I'm a victim, and, and nobody loves me, and, and I feel so hurt, and so upset, and so disappointed, and all like this, and, then we can, we know that, well, just watch it and it'll go away, or 
it's not self, but that the emotion itself is uh, is what it is. So, like in uh, in Vedana and Jitta, Vedana Nupasana Saripatthana and Jitta Nupasana Saripatthana, you you're noticing emotion as impermanent, which isn't judging it. You know, you're not you're not uh, making any judgmental statement about it, but you're noticing that even silly emotions, stupid, childish emotions, uh, selfish emotions are the way they are. They're impermanent. And, and they're not ideals. Emotions aren't ideals. But they certainly are powerful as experience. So you can you begin to, to know the difference between, uh, you know, your, your, your intellect, how to use that, and your emotional life. And not, you don't have to judge your emotional life. You know, make, make critical statements or value judgments about it. But to, to be able to just know it and accept it, even if it is, immature and silly and all that. It doesn't, doesn't matter what, what it, the quality is, as long as you're willing to to accept it. So can you want to call it when you are below yourself and you're immature? Maybe next time you try to do something that's better than to become a mature person? Yeah, but that you can only do that by accepting your immaturity. <laughs> if you're if you're trying to become a mature person, then you, you're stuck with an ideal again, you see, and then, and then, then when you have immature emotions, then you think, oh no, here I go again, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be mature, but this, <laughs> so you start, you know, hating it, but, uh, or resisting it. So that's why this accepting it is actually resolving you know, by accepting your letting, your, the, the paradox is by accepting <coughs> your letting go. So, that is, uh, and I think this is, this is very, for Western people, where we do tend to, to be very idealistic, and oftentimes feel ashamed of our emotions. This is, this is, you know, a way of, of of using these these very, you know, ordinary human experiences with wisdom. Like like I could, I could always act mature in situations. I can put on a an appearance of being very mature. Uh, because you know you're my age and in a position, you know you don't want to kind of you know be act act out your immature emotions in front of everybody. <laughs> so so you know you you have this kind of mask that you know gets you through life, but then then you know I I began to see that that. That, you know, when I was 30, you know, I saw this very clearly. I, 
I could present myself in a very good way to the society, but inside it was wasn't wasn't like that at all, and uh, so and and this is what was bothering me because it was I was so confused by it. You know, there's very you know something very immature and unresolved emotionally, and yet I could. To the world, I was a very, you know, I seemed to be a very well-adjusted, capable person. And, because uh, I could act like that. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, but I wasn't feeling like that. So in, you know, like in, it's interesting, when I went to Wat Pa that life there would bring up a lot of really childish emotions. You know, like limitation, vinaya, things like this. Vinaya brought up uh, all my rebelliousness. I just hated, hated, you know, to be limited and in a kind of, you know, like a child resisting, you know, trying to, to break out of the bounds. And, or, uh, you know, all kinds of, of immature fe- uh, emotional problems that had never, you know, had just been merely repressed, started coming out in the, in the life. But then, but then the whole importance of the life was this mindfulness. So, so you had a, you know, I could see it's a way of, of being able to, uh, liberate the mind. But it was embarrassing because, you know, even in Thailand, I, I didn't want to, you know, I, one, one felt, you know, you, you didn't want to humiliate yourself or things, but I mean, you could, you know, just, just but because of Lung Pao Chao's approach, then I could begin to awaken to a lot of uh, <coughs> conceit. How, 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 you know, I, I didn't, I never thought of myself really as, I had the conceit to think I wasn't conceited. <laughs> I began to see that. <laughs> Pride. Men have a lot of, a lot of pride. Yeah, you get very, we're very proud. No, because the, actually the conditioning was, was the other way. Because the, the emotional conditioning was, was one of self-criticism. Uh, so even a list of all my good points, really, there's no chance of conceit. Because then I could criticize myself for being proud. 
And there's a tremendous fear of inflating myself, of praising myself. And so I, I tended to disparage, to, to not in any way get caught with any kind of delusion that I'm anything at all. I would tend to go the other way, by always, and go to the other extreme of only uh, thinking reality was, the, re the real truth was the, the dark side, the, the weak or the flawed side. I think that, that's the real, that's the real me. And this, it's like a, like something, it's a habit, you know, that it was an insidious habit. And I've, I've learned to drop this habit, but it's taken a long time because the, the tendency to, like, like to, uh, to be self-critical no matter what. And so that, that even, even when I get praise or I'm successful, this this habit will come and say, um, no, you know, you're not, you made a mistake, like giving a talk or something. And everybody says, oh, that was wonderful talk, we really found that helpful. And the thing inside would say, but you shouldn't have said that, and you made a mistake when you said this, and, and you probably upset somebody when you said that, and <laughs> you go on like, and you, you know, the whole critic would go on afterwards, you know. Uh, no, and it, no matter how much, if everyone said, oh, that was absolutely fantastic, best talk I've ever heard, that would still go on. You know, there's no way. Like, it was sort of like, I'm beginning to see it as a habit, because it, it didn't, wasn't based on, on anything real. It was just the reaction through self-consciousness. Because it, it wasn't, because it would always do the same thing, and then, then if I, then if I did the, the, uh, you know, if I did make mistakes, and then I was criticized, and then, then this thing would, the inner critic would really, you know, see, you know, you're really, you know, it would really kind of enforce the sense of not of being a failure, not being good enough. So it was. It was a. There was no way winning that one, except through recognizing, you know, not believing it anymore. And then it does. It just worn out. It still can happen, you know. Like I can give a talk, and then, or something. I'll say something, or something will happen, and this thing will. But I don't believe it. So it has. It has you know, I've just re I, I, I just, I know you, Mara, kind of thing. And so, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't have any, I don't give it any ground to grow in anymore. It's kind of dying out, really. It's not, not a problem. I've observed that, uh, Certain aspects of his personality only, um, almost frequently, arise in like social uh, interactions when one speaks with other people, especially like 
dealing with other people, speaking to other people, and uh, they don't arrive when, say, one is on one's own. Uh, and I think, I mean, the, the Buddha certainly recognized this when he his advice to newly ordained speakers was not to talk too much, not to engage in too much conversation and that is meditation instead, which I find helpful of course because then in meditation one one looks at uh, what one takes to be one's health and one sees the changing as it is. But then again the one has to test it out, this kind of inside that one has. So then one when one does engage in social interaction with others, one sees like the depth of one of one's insight. But I get the sense that there has to be this balance one one has to know when when there is the time for meditation and then the time for testing it out. Right. That's something you have to know for yourself. <laughs> but the uh, like this, like this. No matter what you do, if you get caught up in some kind of frivolous conversation and get carried away, going back into all the old habit, worldly habit. But then. Then you can even use that, like when once you stop, you go say you go and start meditating. And rather than just resisting the kind of, you know, just really to feel it, you know, the kind of, and not even judge it, like oh, I lost it again, you know. Or if you're doing that, be aware of that, you know, that you're 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 making some kind of judgment about yourself and and uh, condemning yourself, just to see that, just to feel that. It helps a lot because then you're you're not just trying to operate from an ideal of I shouldn't go around talking and chit chatting with people and then and then uh, and then you find yourself doing that and then you start no oh, I shouldn't have done that and you, go, you start developing a habit of a lot of guilt around it but so even if you do it <coughs> you get caught up in and, and that moment where you just where you where you're not in it anymore, you suddenly catch yourself and just notice the feeling of it, the, the mood of it, and that that I find helps me much more than making all kinds of aditanas not to talk and you know you know really kind of being kind of very strict with myself and and and, and uh, going from you know a lot of willful willpower, I found, I mean, that, that has a certain value, but oftentimes it, it's still very much, I have to do this. And, and then when you fail and you feel, you know, you feel guilt and despair about it, let's say, if you're willing to use it, welcome it, welcome the feeling of, of having failed and Said all the things you vowed you'd never say. <laughs> it feels like this. <laughs> and then you, then, the, then you, then you begin to uh, 
to, uh, I mean, actually through that, you're, you're letting go of it. Atta, dukkha, atta, selfishness, these take, they, when you really see, and the desire, all these things like anger, lopa dosa moha, uh, selfishness, um, hmm? yeah, ideas of assumptions that things are permanent and uh, and these, once you, rea- and you see the sankharas and really know them, and you're not judging, you know, it's not, not, not to be critical, but just to know sankharas, sankhara. So then, then, then you can actually know a sankhara, or vitsankhan, you know, if you, to know emptiness. But if you're trying to find emptiness by getting rid of sankharas, then Well, like, like that's the, that's the, is the, like renunciation, in the English word has this sense of getting rid of, doesn't it? And uh, so it's, uh, it, it, I mean, and let, even letting go, people, people think of letting go is like getting rid of something. Uh, because we, we, because of the way we think, we think either you, you know, your attachment, or you get, or abandonment sounds like you're getting rid of something. And yet, in Pali, there's a lot of these words like nekama and and uh, like words like abandonment and and renunciation and uh, letting go. Very much the 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 words of the you know, the, the spirit of, of the life. Uh, so, but yet you can see like, uh, this is where you have to, 
you really contemplate the, how you're going to use these words. Like renunciation to me is not getting rid of, but uh, let, willing to let go of letting things be what they are. You know, and and then the renunciation of monastic life is other than seeing it as a, a kind of you know, discipline to stop yourself from getting involved in unwholesome activities, I see it as a, as a simplification, makes life simple. You know, because it's very, you know, the simplification of everything. It, it brings, you get, a, it's easy to get perspective on life from the monastic view, because it's so simple, you know, and it, and uh, so it's, it's, it's uh, it helps to, to get perspective, but if you're attached to, like Vinaya, and and uh, then one of the Baramitas is Nekama, which is translated as renunciation, and and uh, and it sounds, you know, and it is, can be idealized as you've got to get rid of everything, you shouldn't be attached to anything, and then then you're holding to that ideal, and then then you're always failing. Because you you know you always see because you 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 that you're attached and then you and here I am attached again here I'm clinging to this and I shouldn't be there I go again clinging to that I vowed I wouldn't cling I wouldn't be you know and 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 so you you're kind of condemning yourself all the time by your attachment to the ideal of renunciation so then the uh, that doesn't work. And then that's also vipavadanha, you know, wanting to get rid of things, uh, which is, you know, really, which is this kind of self-righteousness in a way. You know, vipavadanha is very righteous. You know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be attached. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and we should be content with what we have. You know, we shouldn't, you know, always be trying to get something better. Well, that's right. <laughs> and, and you shouldn't go around chit-chatting and talking foolishly to other people. That's right. <laughs> so you're always, you're always stuck with this, <laughs> you know, feeling that, that you're never good enough. Because, because you know you can't you're of this righteous tendency, you know. Because right uh, is it seems like if it's right, it's right, and and wrong is wrong. Ajahn Chah, he was always saying, "Jing de mai tu, tu de mai jing," or "True but not right, right but not true." And it, I think like like one time I went to the went to Buddhadasa and uh, and he and he said, How do you practice? And I said, Well we we practice the Vinaya. This is before he really knew about Ajahn Chah. And he says, Well, he says, mindfulness is enough. All you need to, is to be mindful. Oh, that's interesting. Because we were getting this heavy doses of Vinaya. <laughs> so then uh, <laughs> <laughs> so then I went back to Ubor and told Ajahn Chah, I said, Buddhadasa said, 
you, all you need to do is be mindful. And uh, Najan Chah smiles and says, Tu, they're my jing, jing, they're my tu. <laughs> true, but not right, right, but not true. And I've never forgotten that because I was, you know, I get confused, you know, because Buddha Dasi said, mindfulness is enough. And then we're having all this video training. Seemed complicated, and and a lot of it seemed, uh, you know, much to do about nothing. And my, and my, ideally, you know, my my kind of, you know, my nature is is more kind of. I don't particularly like detailed things. You know, I'm kind of, I like, I'm visionary. I have wide views, and I'm, I have, I like big things, and uh, and little details just annoy me. You know, so you're getting into this, this uh, fastidious vinya, you know, it just used to, used to just freeze with anger. And they're talking about little petty little details of this. I just, I just feel so averse to it. You know, I said, oh, mindfulness is enough. I like that. <laughs> and, uh, and, but that jing, that, True, but not right, right, but not true. I see a lot, I mean, in the Sangha, isn't it? There's a lot of, of, of people getting caught up because they are, they, they, what they think is right. And then they, then they get very upset. But, um, because of, you know, they, they're very attached to their, their, their opinion about what should be, how, you know, and then, uh, then they just feel very, critical when they see it's not what it should be. And but this this emotion is very important to see. This feeling of, of uh, you know, this this sense of doubt and it shouldn't be and it's not right. He shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't feel like this. And then you're you're looking at that feeling, not you know by looking, by by understanding that, then you, then you're letting it go. But if you're saying I shouldn't feel like this, then you're attaching to it actually. So you're resisting it, but actually, resisting is attaching. You know, you really attach to everything you resist the most. <laughs> Irresistible.
When the centerpiece comes in the back balance, the energy drops beneath the same point. Then, then, then the effort to carry the duty seems to take me to the place where I have to choose between attending to the need of the situation and attending to um, bringing the energy to the place where I can feel the energy center. So there's a conflict between um, being responsible and maintaining it. And in a situation like um, a water where the need is often you know, people, my, I, I will be, and then I will stop and withdraw, and, um, and then things, and things, and then we can go apart. But it was, it was fascinating to me to hear you say that you've always put meditation first. <laughs> <laughs> is it, how is it that? I mean, is it that we don't experience this conflict or that, that there are times when your energy drops and you know, <coughs> how does that happen? Well, the, uh, well, I mean, what I mean by that is like the, that I, I was willing to use all those things as my meditation, you know. Because it's so easy to get, I found it so easy to get intimidated by the worldly pressures, <clears throat> the demands and expectations and, of myself and the other people and so forth. So I'd, I'd get, I would get very, uh, you know, I could see that if I just <clears throat> put the, the world first, which seemed, which always, the world always had this kind of, you know, it is. It has a sense of urgency and importance and that, that uh, I would easily get intimidated by that, those kind of vibrations. So I'd always trust this, this, uh, this uh, sense of developing the meditation and, and integrating the mindfulness into the, into the worldly scene. And then, uh, you know, I, I went first, I, I, you know, I went, I started, when I started out, I started, you know, getting, trying out everything. You know, I was, in, you know, I was involved with so many things, like uh, the president of the Buddhist society and the, and the, uh, you know, I, they wanted me to teach in Barrie, Massachusetts every year, and then they wanted me to, uh, you know, go to this Buddhist group all over, you know, Britain and and uh, all over the world, you know. They found these, these branch monasteries, New Zealand, and <laughs> I got this spread out. And... Uh, so then, then I, I've been trying to limit it more on the level of activity, and uh, but mainly, I've, in spite of all that, I have, I, I, I learned and learned to know my own limits because the the 
the world does, you know. You know, I could, I could be, you know, I get invitations and all over the place, you know, very tantalizing <laughs> possibilities, interesting things to do, and, and that, uh, kind of, uh, you know, that, that are, are quite tempting. But now I don't, I don't feel tempted, you know, because I know. You know, I'm much more clear about what is useful and what isn't, what is needed, and what is, you know, for myself or the community. <coughs> the, uh, but I think like carrying responsibility, like like with, with with uh, many of us, can just be very attached to the idea of responsibility, and uh, and then. Uh, And then, you know, from that, then we, we easily kind of uh, um, get caught up in things and that we, we were taking, we're feeling, I'm responsible, and then that can be such a burden on the mind. You know, that sense of, I am responsible for this. And then, then if it doesn't work well or, if, you know, then because of that, then you can also feel very, like, hurt when when people say, you know, you were responsible, but you didn't, you know, you didn't, you were irresponsible. <laughs> and so, so that kind of thing, is, you know, is the, is the result of being attached to response to the idea of I am responsible. But I find that just the trusting in this awareness, you know, then responsibility, I can Responsibility is there. I'm, I'm not not trying to get out of anything, but it's not being carried in my mind because I have a, a trust in the Dhamma and the refuge. So, so I'm quite willing to take on responsibilities, but not attached to them. And it doesn't make me irresponsible, it makes me more capable, because I don't burn out. The other way, when I was attached, you know, I was, you know, I was good-hearted and wanting to give and help, but, but my God, you get, you get burnt out from it, because you're, you're carrying it as a burden. Yeah, you, you know when to attach and when not to attach. Like, like with wisdom, satipanya, then you can attach to things, but it's not from ignorance. Like to do something, you have to attach to it. But you know, like now it's time to do this, so you, you do this, and you're attaching. You have to deal with it. You have to 
concentrate, absorb your attention into it. And that. But you know what you're doing, and and then uh, then and, and you're coming from wisdom rather than from just uh, ideas about I have to do this. And then when you, if you, and what, like I'm going to say, if you're attached to something out of ignorance, then you go in the meditation hall and you're sitting there and it's, you're, you know, still going on in your mind. You know, because, and then you're trying to get rid of it. You're resisting it and get a conflict going. Like, like with the Bindaya, I, well, Ajahn Chah said, he said, like Dhamma is about non-attachment, Vinaya is about attachment. He says, that's a paradox, isn't it? <laughs> and he says, here's the one thing you say, non-attachment, and then you, then you give all this instruction about it. <laughs> he says, people get, <laughs> have a hard time understanding. <laughs> but then, like the Vinaya, he said, at first you have to attach to it, to understand it. So you get to study it and absorb into it. And, and appreciate and learn how to use it, you have to attach. But the aim isn't attachment as an end in itself, but non-attachment. Because it's like like learning to drive a car or learning a skill, like playing the, the piano or something. You before you can be creative and and uh, create music and, and be free and spontaneous. You have to attach to the kind of tedium of da 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 <laughs> exercises and and uh, kind of boring practices and and discipline and and uh, you know really um, you know making yourself do it when you don't want to and and going through through the tedium of learning some some skill and. Uh, and by attaching to it, and then and absorbing into it, and taking it on, and then after a while you reach a point where you don't, you can let it go. But it doesn't mean you stop. You you don't play the piano, but you can you can create with it. And then the, the same with Vinaya. It's like when you, you know, at first it's like it's a bit tedious, and you, you know, all seems you know, kind of not very interesting and uh, but as you you know, and you can you can kind of see it, you can condemn it as attachment. But actually it once you learn the vinya, then you can let it go. Which doesn't mean you don't keep it. <laughs> but it's no longer a big thing, you know, it's no no longer something you're carrying. It's it's like it's like a skill that you've learned in terms of of action speech and restraint and and that quietness, fewness of need. But it's not it's not something that that you you bind yourself to forever, but at first it's like learning the basic dance steps or learning to play the scales on the piano. Learning to say basic things in a foreign language.